You're listening to Parenting Our Future. I'm parenting expert Robin McMahon, author of The Yelling Cure and founder of Parenting for Connection. My podcast is all about providing you with the tools and solutions you need in all different areas of your parenting so you can create strong connections with your kids, get all the cooperation you want, and live a life that is full of joy and connection. And by the way, the tools and solutions that you're looking for in your parenting don't just live in each episode of my show. They're also in my free membership site, The Parent Toolbox, where you can access tools created by myself and my brilliant guests that cover everything from helping your kids to sleep, managing meltdowns, reducing overwhelm to getting your kids to listen the first time and so much more. Join The Parent Toolbox so you can download and use the tools that are ready on the site and Each week, a brand new tool is added. And of course, the best part is it's absolutely free to join and to stay in. You can go to www.parent-toolbox.com today. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to share with you another podcast that I think you're going to find really interesting. It's called Didn't I Just Feed You? It's a weekly candid conversation about feeding our families, even for parents who hate to cook. Hosts Stacey Billis and Megan Splawn are two food professionals who get real about feeding kids, tweens, and teens because they're also busy working moms, so they get it. They talk about how to turn things like nachos into a legit family dinner, to the magic of meatballs, to solving the after-school snack problem, even reducing kitchen waste and debt all at once. They chat with guests from Food Network stars to everyday moms who, let's be honest, are the real experts. In fact, Didn't I Just Feed You is a staple on the iTunes Top 100 Food Podcasts and the only food podcast made with parents in mind. Stacey and Megan are on a mission to make cooking easier, more delicious, and maybe even a little bit more fun. Find Didn't I Just Feed You wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Now, you can also find Stacey and Megan on Instagram and Facebook as at Didn't I Just Feed You. Now let's dive into this next episode of Parenting Our Future. Hello, everybody. It's Robin McMahon. I am back with another wonderful guest who's really going to help you in your communication. Communication is so important. The way we communicate with our kids, the way we communicate with our spouses, our friends, our family, so important. And oftentimes we miscommunicate or we misunderstand what we're what people are trying to say and what we're trying to convey so I am so happy to be talking to Krista Ungerbach he is a leadership communication expert former global tech CEO keynote speaker and author of the number one Wall Street Journal best-selling book which I have in my hands 22 talk shifts tools to transform leadership At the age of 42, Krister, after building a $200 million software company, he founded the global talk shift movement to transform 100 million marriages, leaders, and lives. Krister, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm going to start by throwing out one of your statistics from your book, which says that 72% of people have a frustrating relationship either at home or at work. Uh, Is that not 100%? I mean, really? (laughs) That that research is actually out of date. It was actually done before COVID. So we actually haven't even looked at the numbers, but I can only assume that that number is significantly higher as we've all been cooped up in our houses with our spouses. Yes, yes. Oh, yes. It's very true. My husband now works full-time at home with me full-time at home and uh, yeah, it's lovely. And, and, (laughs) you know, yeah, we've run out of things to talk about. So (laughs) what is talk shift? What is talk shift? Tell me about what your movement is all about. So, well, let's uh, there's the movement and then there's what is a talk shift. So a talk shift, a talk shift is just a simple fill in the blanks phrase, provocative question, or kind of counterintuitive exercise that can shift our perspective or the perspective of those around us. Uh, and, and ultimately, they're tools for creating more compassionate communication at work, at home, as a parent, in our marriages, basically any relationship. And then there was kind of a, a big reason why, you know, I'm a CEO. So like, obviously, leadership is important to me. Yeah. Um, 
But ultimately what I found, and interestingly, like the kind of the middle part of the book is like leaderships, which you would think is really business. But one of the, somebody who worked for me like 10 years ago, actually read, he, he bought the book right when it was published and I was sitting in California. I got a text from him. I uh, hadn't heard from him in years. And he said, hey, um, are you supposed to cry while reading this book, asking for a friend? <laughs> and I said, oh, really? Elliot, what chapter made you cry? And it was one of the it was one of the chapters in the leadership section of the book. And I said, why did it make you cry? And he said, it made me realize how I lead my daughter. And so a lot of the even though it's a leadership book and like on the surface, some of the tools seem like they're things that you know, only if you were a leader at work. Many right. of those leadership tools are really about, there's about leadership in relationship and creating mm -hmm. commitment from others, whether that's a child, a spouse, a coworker, or boss, or whatever it may be. Hmm. Okay. Um, what do you mean by that, creating commitment? Well, in the business world, we talk about employee engagement. And I, I think okay. it's kind of interesting that the word engagement that we use in business is the same word that we use before we get married. Huh. We, get, we get engaged. And so ultimately, whether you're married for a year or a day or 50 years, ultimately, it's about how does our communication create commitment from others? Okay. Okay. So, so when you talk about it in terms of a parenting dynamic creating commitment with your child to what listen to you to what do you mean by that well it could be anything like clean your room or you know so we i think you mentioned like so we can say you should clean your room you need to clean your room you know in talk shift number three we talk about eliminating modal verbs which is could should would can uh, and reframing those as either more directive clean your room please clean your room consider cleaning your room. And so by changing uh, these subtle changes to our words, uh, we can actually have different outcomes. Uh, or would you consider cleaning your room? Uh, and, and I think cleaning your room is a kind of a, a, a trivial example, right? Yeah, we yeah. Probably would just tell our children, just go clean your room. But imagine it's something that really is something that, you know, I think that as one of the reasons I think is really powerful is uh, someone who leads in a business context kind of has some power over people, right? So we right. can just ask them to do things and they will do them. But parenting and marriage is a little bit more difficult, is a little bit more difficult. We actually have to get people to be committed to doing things on their own. And so mm -hmm. uh, now if we can create that same kind of commitment in our work relationships and friendship relationships, like th that's actually a higher bar than the kind of communication that you, you need to use, you know, in a business setting. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So you just mentioned modal verbs, right? Could, should, can, uh, those. And, and I think that, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, to me, when you say you should, you know, uh, do this, uh, there is sort of, there's sort of judgment there. There's so, right? And yeah. so when you say, you know, can you consider, it's really like, would you be willing or, you know, that sort of yeah. thing. Right? So a, a bit more, I'm not quite sure how to define the difference, but language matters. So yeah, maybe we can talk about that for a little bit. Well, I think that the, you know, so one of the things that I think people, when they read the book is that should one is really, because it's, I think one thing that happens when people read the book is they become more aware of not only their own words, but the other word, the words that others around them use. And like when you know, when you notice that should, could, would thing, you'll see this happen like tens of times per day in, in you know, depending on how much you're talking, but, you know, observing how other people do it. And it's also a lot of these talk shifts are also how we speak to ourselves. Like oh. I should go work out, right? Like how, do you really want to go work out if you say I should go work out to yourself? Like I don't, usually that means like I'm going to sit on the couch for another 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and what I like about what you talk about, right? So you've got a couple examples here, um, like you should arrive earlier, you could arrive earlier, if you would have arrived earlier, right? Um, and replace, replace it with please arrive earlier, consider arrive earlier, uh, and, and really the problem that you say in here is that most people don't want to be directed to behave according to the wishes of somebody else, which I talk about a lot as counter will, right? Yeah. That it's the will to do the opposite of what somebody is telling me to do because I feel manipulated or forced or like, you can't tell me what to do. Right. So it doesn't work anyway. So you need yeah. that talk shift, right? 
Exactly. It does often does the, as you said, the opposite of the result that we were hoping for. Yeah. Even if you were going to do that thing and somebody says, well, I bet you're going to do that now. You're like, oh, I won't do it then. You know, just because you told me, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people kind of, uh, so one person who commented said, oh, I've read this book. And I thought it was like in the early part, I thought it was just going to be this touchy feely BS. But ultimately, like, because like asking someone whether they would clean their room or arrive earlier, um, you're like, well, I'm just going to tell them and they're going to do it. But the challenge, as we say, is like, but often people don't. So like, what is your outcome? Do you want to be directive and demanding or do you want to, uh, do you actually want to get the request that you're making that the person actually does it? And so, yeah. yes, hello, yeah. yes. So tell me then, what do, you, what do you suggest? I mean, I know what I would say, but what do you suggest if you say, please consider arriving earlier and the person says, I can't, no. Well, that's, no. a, that's a conversation, right? So right. maybe they can't, like, you know, if I said you should arrive earlier and we never actually had the conversation about the fact that, you know, I don't know, maybe they need to drop their children off at school or, you know, something, they have a conflict, like, let, let's have that conversation about what it is. And I think that that's sometimes a big part of the talk shifts is also about giving people permission um, to actually not do the things we ask. Um, because you know, what happens if they don't do the things we ask? We just get more and more frustrated. We don't know why, right? And then we get, we just say it louder. <laughs> we say it more frequently. And we yeah. never actually got to the point of understanding, well, what is the barrier or obstacle? Um, and so let's say they say, well, I can't arrive earlier. Like, okay, well, what's the reason behind that? And then one of the other talk shifts would be like, so what are three things that you could do to kind of remove those obstacles or what obstacles are standing in the way of you um, kind of doing what, what I'm requesting? And then we can have uh, either, I can help brainstorm uh, with them what some solutions to those problems are. Uh, or even better, encourage them to actually come up with solutions to those problems that they're committed to. I love it. I love it. it. That is so aligned with what I say in parenting is, okay, so you come up with a no, instead of just saying it louder, like we want to do and forcing, which doesn't ever help, or we punish or whatever. And that just, that just creates so much disconnection. Instead is to say, oh, okay, well, why? How come? So the curiosity piece is huge. And then I always say, okay, so you're saying no, I need to understand why, and that thing still needs to get done. So how are we going to work this out? And well, that no. does, that doesn't mean we have to be flexible and our child may have to be flexible too. So yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, and I think it's kind of to, to your point. It's also, it's like, we're as parents, we want to, we want to, we want to raise resourceful children, right? Yeah. So one of the other, one of the other chapters that is also in the leadership section that most readers say is one of the best ones. It's about leading people to their solutions, not yours. Like in a work context, bosses often give all the solutions. Well, parents do too. <laughs> and how do you expect to raise resourceful children if somebody says I can't be on time and you say, well, here's the solution to your problem. Like let them solve this and they're going to be more likely to actually be committed to the solution when they come up with it. Right. And so that means you better be a good listener. Yeah. And, and like one of the things I tell parents is to talk less, talk less and listen more, right? Listen to what your kids have to say, because isn't it more powerful to solicit ideas and thoughts from your kids than to give them a lecture of all the ways you know it should work? Like yeah. when was the last time a lecture worked with anybody? Yeah, and we still do it. I'd still do it too. I think that one of the things- you talked about listening. One of the chapters is called The Secret to Listening is Talking. And so I was a software engineer and I learned to program at age 12. And then we have this thing called garbage in, garbage out, right? If you have, if you make a cake with bad ingredients, then you're going to have a bad cake, right? So, and so the, the counterintuitive thing with listening uh, is that if you ask questions that you're not dying to know the answers to, then you probably won't be as interested in listening to the answers. So what if the key to better listening was not necessarily a problem with our ears, but it's a problem with our mouth. Meaning what well, the questions we're asking and how we're asking them. Right, and oftentimes a question is a statement in disguise, yes. right? Yeah, I'm, I'm trapping you. I'm, uh, yeah, I, I'm trying to get, yeah, I'm trying to manipulate this situation. Okay, okay, well, that's really interesting. So, so one of the things I love is empathy. And I, t 
talk about empathy all the time, use it as one of the main tools in, in parenting because for lots of different reasons, partly because our kids don't come to us with fully grown brains. Like life is frustrating for them. They live in a world of giants. It's gotta be hard when you have no control over your life. And all I want is that red balloon and I can't have it. And it's gonna ruin my life as a four-year-old or a two-year-old or whatever. So you said here, and I'm gonna read this because I love it so much. So um, this, this is what I wanna sort of start from. So you have talk shift number 18, which is speak like an emotional Einstein using the language of empathy. And you said in your book here, once upon a time, I was an emotional Einstein. An emotional Einstein is someone who intellectually understands emotional intelligence, but is unknowingly speaking thoughts instead of emotions. I totally get that. I have read countless books on emotional intelligence, yet none of these books touched on the subtle but critical changes to our words that are the difference between analytical communication and that disconnects us and emotional communication that connects us. Yeah. So I, I just, I love that. But here's the thing. I think we understand the concept of empathy, putting ourselves in the shoes of somebody else, but we don't know the words of empathy. We don't know the words to say. So let's talk about that a little bit. I think the simplest one, have you ever, there's this YouTube video called, uh, it's not about the nail, like went viral like years ago. And so there's the, you know, the, the husband is like, so what empathy isn't is trying to solve the person's problem for them. Right. And usually it's just as simple as saying that sounds hard. That sounds frustrating. That sounds whatever. Um, but I think the other thing that what I found in my personal experience, and I don't think that there's probably a reasonable number of men who have this as well. Um, and I think that, so often when people would ask, when we ask us like, how are you feeling? Oh, fine, good. Well, these are not emotions. Fine is not an emotion. Yeah. And so um, what happens is we, we encourage in the book to shift the question to what emotion are you experiencing right now? Because it's very hard to answer fine, good, or bad because those aren't emotions. So, uh, and even in STEM to say the emotion I'm experiencing is blank. Uh, That's a different way of talking, holy cow. And again, it's just by changing the words and the fill in the blanks, whether you, you know, after you get accustomed to it, you may not use all those words, but it's like reminding ourselves. And then the other interesting thing, having learned French and German as an adult, when I was opening businesses in Europe, um, the interesting thing is if you look up the word uh, in, for to feel in a French thesaurus, it's the word sentir. Um, and if you look up in the French thesaurus, you will not see the word penser, which is to think. The same thing in German, uh, but you will see this in English. So the word feel is often a synonym for I think, or I feel, I think. And the way we, the antidote to that is, uh, usually it happens when I say, I feel like, I feel that. And then what's happened is there's actually a thought after that. So the antidote is I feel, and then the next word is always an emotion word, sad, glad, mad, whatever, you know, yeah. fill in the word. Um, and I give a couple other tips on like kind of words that are, we call, I call them false emotions. Um, like I feel judged. Well, whenever it says, if I could say you judged me, that's not, that's kind of like a false emotion. Cause if I say, I feel judged, it's like, what I'm really saying is you're judging me. And that's not really emotional communication. It's creating disconnect. Now in about 99% of the cases, it works uh, that if you have a emotion word that ends in ED, uh, it's really an action that you we think someone has done to us. Um, and so by doing that, like, you know, we can just, again, subtle shifts to our words and simple rules that we can kind of keep in mind when we're having this. And as you know, you don't need to take, it's most important to really think about these rules when we have a very, you know, we have a really sensitive conversation coming up and we think about it, like, yeah. well, what am I going to say? I feel this, I feel that, uh, you know, feel, I, I feel, and then think of what is the emotion that we experience, we're experiencing. So. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about those hard conversations because those happen in marriages and in partnerships and, and all that kind of stuff. So let's kind of pivot to relationships with our parenting partners, right? Whether, wh wh whoever that is. So um, how, if you want to change the behavior of your spouse or your ex-spouse, how would you go about doing that? 
Well, this gets to the heart of why we wrote a leadership book that uh, also can be used in marriage and in parenting. So I just have a story that's uh, happened in May. I was in an Airbnb in a small wine city. And there was this like 65 year old man, Swiss man, his wife, they'd run the Airbnb. And I was like, hey, would you read the book? And uh, I'll come back and interview you because we just had this amazing conversation about how language and German and she's American and whatever. And the next morning I was having breakfast and she came out and she sat down with me. He goes, hey, did, did Adrian tell you what I gave him for Christmas this year? I said, no. He goes, well, he was, so, so he was opening his Christmas gift and he opened it and it was a book and she had the book in her hands and he goes, oh, thanks for the gift. Hey, wait, didn't you give this book to me five years ago? She said, yeah, you didn't read it then. I want you to read it now. <laughs> and so it was, a, it was a book about, I mean, the title was something about like anger in marriage or something like that. I don't remember what the title, but it was clearly like, you're only giving that book to your spouse. If you're like, we definitely need to work on our communication. Yeah. But the, so the reason why we wrote a leadership book is the reality is, is that many men are more likely to read a book to help them with their career and be a better leader or at work. So it's a little bit of like, uh, oh, you know, imagine like, you know, especially if it was a spouse, maybe who doesn't work, gives like, hey, here's a leadership book. Like my wife gave me a leadership book. Like, I, like I've never gotten a business book from my, and so the intention is that the, the, because all of the chapters do cross over, regardless of whether they're in the leadership section or the relationship section of the book, the intention is to meet those men, the career-oriented men, where they are, which is in the business section of the bookstore, not the parenting section or the marriage section of the bookstore, but give them tools. And also what I find is both myself as a man um, and uh, I think that actually this, this happens to anyone, I don't want to make it gender specific, is some of us feel more comfortable practicing these tools. Uh, we feel safer practicing them at work. Others feel safer practicing it at home. Like if I have a toxic boss, maybe, I, but I have a great marriage, I can practice these things in my home before I go take them, you know, into my career. Other people are the opposite. If your marriage is like, you know, on the verge of destruction, like people might not feel comfortable practicing at home. They want to find, you know, they, they'll practice in a different area of their lives. And so that was really kind of the core. And then we, we did one of the first ever video books. Um, and the intention is that mostly in a personal relationship, you can actually pop the book onto your smart TV and watch it with your spouse. Each chapter is like about TED talk length. They're about eight to 10 minutes. Um, and there's something that happens that doesn't happen in an audiobook or a, a, a re reading a book. One, you hear the inflection of how the talk shifts are used, but we actually, because I'm looking directly at the camera, you actually experience a little bit of what it feels like to be spoken to using the talk shifts, mm. uh, which, which wouldn't even happen if you're, you know, listening to an audiobook because there's not that eye contact. Right. Uh, eye contact with the TV in this, in this case. But yeah. so, um, and then the other last thing about the video book, which is really important for getting alignment between parents or even ex-spouses is, uh, so when people get the video book, we actually, you have the ability to share any given, any one chapter with anyone, even anonymously. So that ex-spouse who maybe, you know, <laughs> Um, you can go and be like, I really wish he or she would read chapter 13. Yeah. And uh, while we don't encourage passive aggressive behavior uh, in sending <laughs> yes. it anonymously, we have had a number of people who tend to send it to their boss or their ex spouse, you know, as a uh, with a nice, uh, you know, hey, this might be interesting. Uh, and hopefully they don't find it in their spam folder and they actually watch the video. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's sort of, can we? go through a scenario where um, let's say uh, you've got two parents, right? Husband and wife, and you have a, a husband and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm just going to use an example from that. I've just heard. be honest. That's how it usually works, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not going to be offended. Yeah. We could just use like, it doesn't work the other way, but so we have a husband who doesn't want to do it. <laughs> He doesn't want to do anything. Uh, I'm thinking of a specific situation here uh, with with a client. Uh, husband is not interested in uh, improving his parenting. Is not interested in um, engaging, except for when he's angry. 
at the behavior. So all the kids experience is dad's mean and dad's not nice. Mom wants to really improve, doesn't know how to get him on the same page. Incidentally, I met him, talked to him, and uh, he's like, nah, she just seems too nice. I'm like, I'm not that nice. But anyway, um, so how would that, how would you start a difficult conversation? And how do you stay untriggered as the one who wants to have the conversation? And how do you create change? So, well, there's a lot there. The, how do you, I mean, uh, the first question would be if you sp sparking a talk shift with somebody would say on a scale of one to 10, how open would you be to reading this book with me? You know, maybe sending them one chapter at a time, thinking of reading the book and saying, what's the one chapter that they would be interested in? Like what's a problem that he's having at work or with a friend or with somebody in his family, whatever it is. And be like, Hey, this chapter might be interesting and give you some alternative ways to handle it. Um, and what if they say, I don't want to read any of it. I don't, I don't care. It doesn't look good to me at all. Um, so th that's, well, there's a separate, you know, I would say there's probably a much deeper issue going on. Like if I make a request of my spouse and my spouse is unwilling to do anything like, okay, so what is it? What is it that, what is the need that they're filling? And how do we get to this point that asking a spouse to watch a eight minute video they're unwilling to watch an eight minute video. It's, it's probably at least partly in how we're asking. Okay. Or some pattern of behavior or criticism or whatever it has kind of, you know, built up over some months or years. Um, so, I mean, I don't, my thought would be like, is there something that the, the person who's asking in this case would be the wife, I guess, uh, the mother um, that, you know, maybe, maybe there's something that in order to get a break in the relationship or get a, uh, to set a new pattern that, um, a behavior that that person would need to change. Now it's not okay for somebody to be like, you know, resistant and whatever, but I, I, the reason why the book is called tools to transform leadership is because I call it leadership in relationship. You know, mm -hmm. sometimes leadership in relationship is being the first person to apologize, even though somebody else did something equally bad, we can always apologize for our part and make commitments that we're going to do something differently. So, um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think that that would be without getting and observing the exact way that the person was, you know, asking. Um, but I think that, as you would probably guess, like if somebody's that resistant, there's there's some deeper thing yeah, that they're I, really resisting. It's not eight minutes to, you know, to watch it. But we did create one of the other reasons we did create a video book and you know, audio book is the reality is, is that women tend to read twice as frequently as men. So watching a video for many, you know, for many men or just people who just don't enjoy reading there's, we wanted to make sure that you could use the book to connect with people regardless of what their preferred mode of consuming the content is, video, right. audio, or a book. I like that. You've covered all the bases, like no excuses, right? But, exactly. but that's also that counter will, like this is going to be good for you. You need to read this, right? So you got to watch those modal verbs, right, as well, uh, and, and say, please, can you consider watching this video with me, perhaps? Right. Yeah, and I think we're actually getting ready to start a webinar in the next couple of weeks to walk people through this. And I think what happens, uh, and I, I've been victim of, I, I've done this before as well in my life, is we pick up a book or whatever, like, oh, you have to read this, right? Yeah. And often a better way to do it is actually what we're going to encourage people to do is, you know, just put it on your nightstand, like, you know, just don't say anything about it. Be the first book. Be like, oh, I'm reading this amazing book let them come to you. Like, what is it about? Like, mm -hmm. you know, and so let them come to you and be like, I actually kind of want to read that book or give a, you know, a lot of times when people buy the book from the talkshift.com website, they buy multiple copies and they'll give a copy of the book to someone like, so in your case, who's someone who that husband, uh, the example with your client, who's someone that that husband would trust? Well, get, maybe give a copy of the book to that person. And then say, hey, if you think it's good, could you tell Bob, like, this is a really good book. Good idea. So influencing from around the person, if you have somebody who's that kind of um, uh, anchored in not being involved. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing too, I'm just going to add in from my own personal experience. Um, my husband is a no before he's a yes. He yeah. always says no before he says yes. And one of my kids is just like that too. So I'm always like, I have learned 
to just wait, just wait for it. I don't need to say, come on, you know, this means a lot to me, you know, come on, just this, like, just this one time, can you just please trust me that this is going to be good for you and it's going to really help us? I don't do any of that anymore. I just say, I zip it, I just zip it. And then, yeah. and then he will come back because he just needs a minute to process it, to think about it. And maybe every once in a while, I have to say, look, just trust me, just watch this one thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. And because we have a good relationship, he does trust me. He will usually come around. So the, one of the other talk shift that's kind of used throughout the book is, you know, rather than asking, would you read this book is to say on a scale of one to 10, how open would you be to exploring some or all of this book? And so then they can say, well, I'm a six. Now, some people often, you know, in their resistance situation, they'll say no, even though the question was on a scale of one to 10. But then the follow-up is like, if they say six or seven, um, like, so, well, what would be the difference from a six or a nine? Would you like to watch the video book or whatever? And oh. then to your point, and this would just be the talk shift way of doing what you just said with your husband is just my request is that you read this book with me. And then walk out of the room, leave it like, you know, I'm not going to convince you. I'm simply saying, you know, my request, I'm not going to give you the reasons. I'm not going to convince you. I'm not going to lay out a legal case for why you should spend four hours reading a short book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just saying as your wife and as the parent of our children, my yeah. request is that you spend four hours with me and read this book. And then what we do is then we encourage people who read the book or watch it together at the end of each chapter to say, Hey, this is one of those talk shifts that I'd like you to practice more with me. And what we find is two people rarely request of each other the same talk shift, right? Someone would be like, hey, I would like, there is a chapter, I think one of the most powerful chapters of chapter 19 is about anger. And so um, the book was written where even kids as young as eight or 10 could actually watch that video book. And you, that, that, that parent, could, if the husband is unwilling to kind of, is always this angry person, understanding what drives anger, even the children, you know, hopefully depending on how old they are, like certainly teenagers would be old enough to understand, oh, when dad's angry, that's just a symptom that he's has another emotion that he's not talking about. Yeah. Yes. And, and we, I, I talk about anger being like an iceberg, right? Anger is what you see at the top, but below the surface is all these other emotions that you don't see. What you see is the expression of all of those, which is anger and anger really you boil it down. It's, it's other emotions. I, I, I totally agree. Okay. But, but here's the thing I want to get back to, uh, you know, we, we keep going, we have examples of reading the book, but I want to say, I want you to participate in parenting more um, so on a scale of one to 10, how open would you be to talking about ways we can come together, mm -hmm. parent together? Is that, is that a good way to start? Yeah. Yeah. That okay. would be, uh, or, or, and then, you know, depending on what they answer, like what are the obstacles or barriers to, you know, being more committed? Um, or another way to frame it is, is how open would you be or how committed are you? Okay, how open or committed? And then how do you follow that up? How open would you be to spending more time with the kids? How committed are you to our family? Like, woo, we could go in a, it could go wrong fast, right? Yeah. So what's well, the best? I, I don't know. I, I think that, you know, if, if we ask how committed are you to the family, then that probably is, I mean, there's really only, it's best to stay away from questions where there's really only one right answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. Okay. So, so I, I like how open, how open are you to talking about, you know, our roles together in this family and how we parent and, how, you know, right. And, uh, and so, and then I like what you say. So they throw out a number and you say, okay, well, what's the difference between a six and a nine? Can we, how can I get you to a nine or how, you know, right. Come up with some solutions. So yeah. I think also what is really important here is not to take what the other person says personally, right? And to recognize that they're feeling their own feelings right now. And it's not about you, it's about them and whatever story they've told themselves, whatever is going on for them, right? Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. I always take, I always, so I talk about having like intentional conversations in the work that I do, right? Because sometimes we do have to have a big conversation with a spouse when we oh, want to have some change. And, uh, and I, and I sort of, you know, I, I talk about really the same stuff you do it, 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 to a certain degree. 
And that sometimes when you want to have a, a conversation that brings up emotions in somebody else, and then they, what we're, what we're up against is their armor and their armor is, well, you don't do that either. And I want, you know, you blah, 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 blah. And it's not nice. And so it would be so easy to attach to each one of those. Well, what about you? Or I saw you say this and do this and you're not perfect either. And you want me, you know, all this, I always say, be like Neo in the matrix and pretend that all those words are like those bullets that are missing you. Right. And you just let them fly past you because what you're waiting for is you want to get to the place underneath where I don't think you trust me or I just don't feel like I'm a good enough mom or dad. Right. Would you agree? Yeah. And I think that like before, um, before kind of trying to, let's say control the other person by getting them to engage in some behavior, uh, talk about the feelings. Like, I am afraid as a mom or a dad, I'd like, you know, what is this going to look like for our children if this continues? Like, I feel, I'm afraid that I'm not being a good mom or dad, or I feel afraid. So like talking about those and getting behind the anger or getting, stepping around the anger. The other thing I think is, and I have this happen with uh, every once in a while, my wife gets, uh, I tend to be very, very calm uh, with everyone. Most everyone in my life, except for my father, because he's the one who in the past has triggered me. Uh, I've gotten to a point where I'm calm with him as well. But uh, so whenever someone starts saying those things, like to hurt us, like you did this or that, the most important thing is just not to engage and just stay calm and like, they're like, you know, when someone's in that state, there's no way that you're going to convince them, <laughs> you know, like a- engaging. And he says, you know, uh, Dr. John Gottman says like the best thing to do is it takes like 20 to 30 minutes for someone's physiologically when they're in that state of anger, it takes 20 or 30 minutes minimum for someone's heart rate to slow down and for them to actually have a meaningful, compassionate conversation. So coming up with a way to actually exit the conversation rather than just escalating and going around in circles for 15, 20 minutes or an hour, however long it is, um, is really, is really critical. Um, knowing that you're not going to win the argument in the moment. Right. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but what I wanted to say is, so when you are met with big emotion, understand that rational thought is really not there necessarily and it takes about and the Gottman Institute John Gottman I mean they're the best right um uh, and to so and to just say okay like now like to tell yourself and maybe even your spouse like now is not obviously not the time to talk right and that time and boy that takes a lot of self-control I think right to disengage because you also have all of your big emotions too and there is, I know that I, you know, of course I, I, I'm not perfect. And there is sort of that nanosecond where it does feel good to like yell, where it does feel good to just like, oh, I just want to tell you, I hate you right now or whatever it is. Right. But that's not going to get you any closer to connected communication in a connected relationship. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's it really be- like ultimately that's, that's that leadership and relationship is being able to remain calm when maybe the other person is not letting it, you know, yeah. it, waiting to get to a point where you can have a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. I I've had, you know, my son, my oldest son has, is, is, can be a lot um, to say the least sometimes. And I, I talk about him all the time. He's just the most wonderful human and he's big emotions. And so there are times where he comes at me. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, there was a situation where it was a misunderstanding and he came at me and I was like, Oh, like, just like, it was like a slap in the face. And it was hard for me not to respond or react when there was a lot of blame that he was blaming me. He was calling me a liar. He was, you know, all this stuff. And I'm really trying to like, let it go. And also I was about to hop on a call with a client. And this was like 15 minutes that I had for a break between clients so that I could just like decompress myself. So yeah, like sometimes it happens at a moment that you're not ready for it or whatever. And to keep calm, oh, it, it, it takes practice. And, and I, I want to say practice intentionally because it's not about perfection. You can't be perfect all the time. You just can't be. Right. It's a practice. I totally and, agree. 
you can always apologize, right? Yeah, well, that's actually the last chapter in the book is about how to apologize because I think often we don't um, we don't really realize many of us don't know how to apologize. I definitely didn't know how to apologize before I wrote the book, and uh, and I think that that is actually probably one of the most important skills because sometimes you know it could be that moment where you say I hate you or whatever. Well, those things when we don't process them and apologize and work through them, those are the things that potentially, you know, a spouse who's like, I'm not going to read a book or I'm not going to engage with this parenting or change my style. The real thing that may have driven that may have been something that happened years ago. In fact, often it is something that happened years ago. And until we know what that is, um, in fact, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who I kind of felt some distance uh, and I just reached out to him. I said, hey, could we kind of have a conversation about like, what is it that I've done or said that's kind of created this distance and and I remember I said I, I can think of like 10 things that maybe I did but I wouldn't be surprised if it's an 11th or 12th thing that I don't even know yeah the conversation he goes you know what like seven years ago I sent you a survey that I asked you know and you sent me an email back saying hey I don't really know you as well because I don't see you and my, my email must have been much more much more harsh but I wasn't interacting with this person like on a day-to-day -day basis and I just didn't know if I felt really qualified to give him feedback on his kind of survey about his passions yeah. or something like that. And so anyway, it was the 11th or 12th thing that I had no idea about. That was the thing that he was like, yeah, that created some distance, you know, seven or eight years ago. And mm -hmm. interestingly, like I only started to sense the distance in the last two years. Uh, you know, I had some totally different story that I'd made up in my mind. Right. How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is right on. I mean, we, we operate from the place we were hurt the most, I think too. Right. And so here you are seven years later, like, Oh, we're just bringing this up now, you know, but that stuff does fester, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, you know, like Brene Brown, we always talk about seeing people and being seen and all that. I think the biggest challenge in relationships is often not seeing people, but unseeing who they were. Right. Because we're flawed, right? That's yeah. a human, a shared human experience, right? That we make mistakes, right? Is that what you mean? Well, often when people change, and it's interesting, this happens in like weight loss, like, you know, the weight loss, uh, people say that sometimes someone will lose like 50 or 100 pounds or more, and their body image doesn't actually change for like six months or a year after that. They still feel like, you know, the person that they were before. But I think the same thing is like in relationships, I know this with my father, who was kind of my most difficult relationship in my life. Um, there were, there were points where he actually had stopped some of the behaviors that were kind of the core of our issue in our relationship, but I still saw him as the, those behaviors. I, I wouldn't allow myself to see that he was no longer doing those behaviors. And that's why I say, sometimes we need to unsee who people were in order to see who they are. The mm -hmm. current version, not the version that hurt us years or decades ago. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. I think, I think we do that with our kids, right? We still see our kids as kids, even though they're grown adults, right? Often. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that that's what happens when you label behavior, instead of being curious about it, you label the behavior and then that's all you see is yeah. what you've labeled. And it takes you further away from curiosity and even compassion. Right. And, and it doesn't allow you to see the change because people do change and evolve and grow. Yeah. Um, but if you've just, if you've just sort of written them off, like, no, you're just a jerk. Yeah. That's I remember it. a story related to this, like we don't see our kids, like a, a, a friend of mine who was a partner in a big like accounting firm. He told me a story of like some, some person who started as an intern there and they were now in their thirties or forties. And he said, you know, you need to leave this firm because you'll never make partner. And then I said, why? He said, because all the people around here can't forget that you were the 19 year old intern. And we do that with our kids all the time, right? They could be 35 years old and we're like, oh, you know, like we, we, we like project some behavior that they did when they were 10 years old at soccer practice and like, oh, you're doing it again. It's like, no, I'm 35 years old or 20 years yeah. old, you know? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge. Well, and, and I think too, that those, especially from the parent child piece is that when you do label that behavior, our kids take that on. 
And they say, oh, well, then I must be a jerk. I must be selfish. Like I was always my thing. My dad decided that I was selfish and that's, that's how he saw me. And in fact, that's even how my sister sees me. Cause I remember having this conversation with her not too long ago because my dad decided that was true for me. So that's how he saw me. I took that on and that's the record that plays in my head. And what that cost me is uh, my self-esteem. And it also made me this people pleaser, you know? Um, And I felt like I had to make sure people knew that I was a kind and good person before they even had a chance to decide if I was or not um, by, by overdoing things, you know? Um, And, and that's a disempowering belief. Yeah. For me, the words, for me, the words were undisciplined and lazy. Those are the ones that my father called me and like, oh, somebody, I had a coach once said to me like, so Christopher, you work like 60, 80, hundred hours. Like, especially when you were in your twenties and you still work, you know, 50 hours a week, like lazy people don't work 50 or 60 hours a week, but still, because my father said that to me multiple times while I was young, uh, it probably hasn't said it to me in 25 years. But as you know, those words that we speak to our children and how we label them as parents, like, just like, it's like a sponge. It just seeps in and it doesn't, it's, it's hard to get, it's hard to get the smell out. Yeah. And we have to be very careful of the way we talk, you know, how we label our kids, uh, because labels don't actually show you who who the real person is at all. Mm right? You miss what's really going on with them. So um, this, this is just, um, I think this is so helpful to hear this and to, um, to really understand, you know, communication, we can, we can really get such deeper relationships and be better leaders of our family, of our businesses, of our workplace, by being kind, compassionate, curious, empathetic, Right. And and choosing these words differently. And I and I want like I think in terms of sort of this male dominated world and business and that sort of thing, you know, it's not weakness to be kind and compassionate at all. In fact, that's what employees need. That's what people need in order to be to want to work for you, to be more productive. People don't quit companies. They quit bosses. Right. So this is and they don't leave marriages. They leave spouses. Yeah. So that was one. I had an interesting conversation after the book was published with uh, uh, two marriage counselors. Um, They had been in like marriage counselors, a husband, wife, marriage counselor team. uh, And they've been counselors, I don't know, like they're in their 70s. So they've got probably 80 or 100 years of marriage counseling uh, under their belt. And I asked them, so what are the things that unhappy wives and unhappy husbands have been saying on your couch for decades? And they said, like, he doesn't listen. He doesn't appreciate me. Always criticizing, always solving my problems for me. And I said, that's really interesting because those are the exact same things that unhappy employees say about their bosses. How interesting. Wow. So maybe leadership in business and leadership in family and marriage is not so different after all. Right. Okay, I think that is a really good place to end. Krista, thank you for this. This is really, really important. We need to know how to better communicate. And you are going to give uh, the listeners something really special. So uh, when we were just talking about how do you have a conversation with your spouse or your boss, whomever, that you need to have a really intentional or a change, you know, uh, you need to make a change is to really use that on a scale of one to 10, starting with that conversation. And so you mentioned that you have the, your book in videos. And so you're yeah. going to give us that video. And so that, that normally would cost people. And this is what your gift is to everybody listening. Um, and that is uh, just from the book. It's talk shift number five on a scale of one to 10. I think that's going to be a tremendous help. And that's something you can watch with your spouse. Yay. Yeah. So I, the other thing I could also add is the, the, the we'll also give you the, the 13 chapter. So if you do have a spouse who is a business, it's one of the chapters out of the business section of the book. Okay. The tool works equally well. It's the, the lead people to their solutions, not yours. So it works equally well with children. But if you do have a spouse who's resistant to reading a book like this, and maybe a business chapter might be 
uh, a better one to start them off, um, then that could be one you could share. Oh, that's so awesome. Okay. Yes, we will take it. We'll take it all. Thank you so much. So the book is 22 Talk Shifts, Tools to Transform Leadership in Business, in Partnership, and in Life. This is so great. Thank you so much, Christopher, for being here and for helping us to communicate better. You know, it's going to make the world a better place when we can really talk about what we're feeling, what we're needing uh, without judgment, without criticism and all that kind of good stuff. It's good for our, our work, our family and for our lives. Thank you so much. And um, you can go to TalkShift.com to find out more about Krister and the book. And tell us about the book and all the proceeds. Where do they go? Oh, so yeah, when I when I sold my company, I decided that uh, we everything everything we do, I don't take any compensation from this. 100% of the profits go to the cause of changing the words of the world. So uh, um, we we intend to pay our employees well, but uh, I'm I'm the lowest paid person in the company at zero dollars. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> Wow, that's that's great. All right, so that is a really beautiful intention, and uh, and I think that really speaks to the kind of person you are. So that is really wonderful. Um, all right, so I hope people will check it out, and uh, if if nothing else, please go to the Parent Toolbox, look for Talk Shift number five and number thirteen, and it will dramatically change the results that you're getting in the conversations that you're having. Again, Krister Ungerbrock, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for listening to this edition of my podcast, Parenting Our Future. I'm parent coach Robin McMahon. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with someone who you think might also need to hear this message. And don't forget to subscribe. And if you like my work, I'd be grateful if you gave me a five-star rating. For those of you who like my content and want more, visit me at yellingcurebook.com to get your copy of my book and to find other resources to help you. Until next time, I am wishing you and your family peace and connection.